It was a dark and stormy night. All good stories start like that, don't they? There was a gang of thieves that broke into a jewelry store, but they were on a different kind of mission. They didn't steal anything. They just took price tags and moved them around. And they were so subtle that, and they left, they left no trace. The staff came in the next morning and didn't notice anything wrong, anything different. But customers were spending huge amounts of money on really cheap junk and very little on thousands of dollars worth of jewelry. The thieves had turned the value system upside down. Throughout our study of Mark, we've seen again and again that Jesus is announcing the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is breaking in and Jesus, the king of this kingdom, is revealing the secret of the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is a whole different set of priorities, of value systems. It's completely upside down to the kingdoms of the world. In today's passage, the clash of the kingdoms of the world is brought into contrast with the kingdom of God. Two completely different value systems and priorities. So if you turn in your Bibles to Mark 14, 43, <clears throat> we're going to be reading Mark 14, 43 through 52. And it says, Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The man seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with me with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, the, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. There's so much going on in this passage. It's hard to know where to begin. So I'll make a couple of observations first, and then we will get into this clash of the kingdoms. This is a fast-moving story. Twice the word that Mark, uh, that, that we the Greek uses for immediately is used in these, in these verses. In verse 43, it says, just as he was speaking. That's a translation of that word. And then in verse 45, it says, going at once to Jesus. It's the same Greek word translated two different ways, but really it means immediately. These are different ways of translating immediately, and it just shows that this passage is moving quickly. Things are happening. In the passage just before this one, Jesus had spent a long time praying and coming to terms with what was about to happen, what he was about to experience. He had finally been able to submit to the will of the Father and pray, not my will, but your will be done. And then in verse 42, he announced that it was time to go. His betrayer was coming. And then verse 43, it says, immediately Judas appeared. Jesus was now on a fast track to his arrest, his trial, his death. And the events happened one after another rapidly in quick succession. 
Another observation is this continuing theme that's been throughout our passages that we've looked at in Mark so far. And that's, it's so evident in this passage. It's the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty is the, the supreme power and authority of God. It's seen throughout this passage. Jesus announces that Judas was coming and he immediately he appeared. It's almost as if his words caused Judas to appear. In verse 18, Jesus had revealed that the, one of the 12 would betray him. And here comes Judas, one of the 12, leading a crowd of people with swords and clubs to betray him. In verse 27, Jesus had said that all the disciples would fall away. And then in verse 50 of our passage this morning, everyone deserts him. And in verse 49, Jesus didn't fight back or run, but just said that the scriptures must be fulfilled. Isaiah 53:12 is a prophecy that says he was numbered with the transgressors. Here Jesus was being arrested as a transgressor, as an outlaw. In Zechariah 13, 7, there's a prophecy that says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is being struck and the sheep scatter, all his disciples flee. And then we get to the kiss. Have you heard of the kiss of death? If you look up the kiss of death in the dictionary, it says an act or relationship that has fatal or disastrous consequences. And it also references Judas betraying Jesus with the kiss. This is the story that originated that phrase, the kiss of death. And it's actually fascinating to think about because there's a depth of truth and even irony in this kiss of death because it's the kiss that betrayed Jesus that led to his crucifixion, but the irony is it wasn't disastrous for the plans of God. It wasn't disastrous for Jesus beyond the crucifixion. He meant to do this. He came to do this. He was ready and willing to do this. It's always been the eternal plan of God, the Father and God, the Son. Ironically, it was Judas who was ruined by his own kiss of death. Mark doesn't record what happened to Judas after this. He just falls out of the picture. But in Matthew 27, it tells us that Judas <clears throat> saw that Jesus was condemned and he was convicted. He, he was seized with remorse. So he went and gave back the money and went out and killed himself. Judas was the one that was ruined by the kiss of death. Judas, he came with a crowd he was on an official mission from the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the highest ruling body and court of justice among the Jewish people. So this wasn't just any crowd. However, Mark uses this word crowd several times throughout Mark. And, and before this, the crowd was always interested, always curious, maybe not uh, fully following Jesus, just standoffish, but they'd never been hostile to Jesus. From now on, the crowd is opposed to Jesus. Judas knew that Jesus would be in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he arranged that he would identify Jesus with a kiss. And it seems a little weird to us that he would have to lead people that likely would have seen Jesus many times before because he was openly preaching and teaching in the temple during the day. But it was at night, Judas knew where he would be and he would not be confused by the dark, by who this person was. He knew him intimately and so he arranged that he would lead them straight to Jesus. And uh, a kiss 
was a sign of affection. It was also a sign of respect and honor when given to a superior. It's hard to imagine how Judas could have been with Jesus so long, have seen his love, his compassion, his power, his authority, and still be so against him that he would play this role of a loving disciple while stabbing Jesus in the back. He comes up and he greets Jesus with this honorable title, Rabbi. And then he kisses him, and the word that's used, the Greek word for kiss, is not just a peck on the cheek, but this affectionate kiss. He's playing up his part uh, while ironically mocking Jesus in the process. Now, when Judas had prearranged this signal, he was telling, uh, he was intent on telling the people he brought, uh, have your arms, your, your swords and clubs, arrest Jesus and, and have him under guard when you take him away. Judas and his gang, they're expecting a fight. The thing that stands out in this passage is the repetition of the words, swords, clubs, arrest, and seize. These words are, are repeated throughout the passage and they conjure up uh, violence. They're forceful words for Im- and they're images for fighting and power and control. This is how the kingdoms of the world work. They fight for power. They scheme for control. They sneak around at night. They betray each other to get what they want. They carry weapons as a show of force and they're willing to use those weapons to get what they want. But in verse 48, Jesus confronts these these people armed with swords and clubs and he says, am I leading a rebellion? that you have come out with me uh, with swords and clubs to capture me. The wording is interesting. It translates a word, <coughs> uh, Greek word, leistes, which could mean robber or thief or outlaw. It translates it as leading a rebellion. But it, it, it can be used that way. It's used for social political revolutionaries. John 18.40 calls Barabbas that we'll meet next week uh, calls him a laystace, robber, but he was also in, uh, part of a, a riot or an insurrection. So Jesus says, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out to capture me with swords and clubs? And the obvious answer to those of us who are reading this is no, of course not. Because he goes on to say, every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you didn't arrest me. This kind of activity is not what an insurrectionist who is leading a rebellion does. Doesn't preach openly. He's sneaking around at night. It's another irony in the story because the people who are sneaking around, who are armed with swords and clubs, they're they're the ones that look more like rebels than Jesus because he openly taught in the temple while they're lurking around in the dark and they're making secret alliances with a betrayer and they're arming themselves with swords and clubs. Jesus wasn't leading a rebellion the way kingdoms of the world do, but he was leading a revolution, a completely different kind of revolution, a kind that has a completely different value system, completely different priorities. The revolution he was leading is a revolution that would change everything, but not through power and through force and through swords and clubs, but from the inside out, from the bottom up. Jesus is bringing the kingdom of heaven 
and the kingdom of heaven, the way of the kingdom of heaven is not to exert power and force through violence. Back at the end of chapter 8, Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is, is, is not about finding your life, seeking it, but by losing it. We lose your life. You follow Jesus by dying to yourself. And then in chapter 9, he talks about the kingdom of God being about serving the least, not commanding to be served, but by serving the person in front of you no matter what their socioeconomic status or how rich or poor or what they look like. Just loving that person in front of you and being willing to serve. Chapter 10, he talks about the kingdom of God being impossible for humans to enter. But to enter it, we have to have faith in God like a child. A child knows they can't do something, so they trust their parent to do it. We have to trust God to do it for us. The revolution of the kingdom of God is not a revolution like the kingdoms of the world. The kingdoms of the world fight for power and nothing really changes. A new emperor, a new king, or a new leader emerges, but then it's the same system. It's just a shift of power. The revolution of the kingdom of God is about heart change. It's a completely different value system and a completely different order of priorities. Instead of every person for themselves, it's about love and care and concern for everyone. No matter how poor or rich, every person is thought of, loved, cared for, protected, and provided for. And the only way for this to happen is for Jesus to follow the eternal plan of God. Jesus says, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. In Isaiah 52 and 53, the prophecy of Jesus is that he will be raised up and highly exalted, but he will be despised and rejected. He will suffer. He will take up our pain. He will be pierced for our wrongdoings. He will be pierced for our wrongdoings. He will be crushed, crushed. The wrath of God will come down on him for our sinfulness. He will be punished and wounded so that we could be set free and healed. The kingdom of God is like nothing we could have ever imagined or dreamed of because God does it all. He pursued the humans that he created to love and to be in a love relationship, but these humans, they rejected God. He gave them opportunities to turn back to him and to choose him. He committed to them, and when they failed, he didn't. He was faithful. And he continues to be faithful. He keeps his promises and all the while he had a plan that the Son of God would become human. He would live a completely pure and holy life that, the, that, that, that we were supposed to live but couldn't. And then he would be betrayed and crucified by us, by humans, so that he could take the punishment that we deserve. He took all of that guilt and that shame and that humanity upon himself, which would be awful for someone that, that, whose character is completely opposed to all of that. And then he would also suffer the wrath that that deserves. And he doesn't put up a fight. He willingly goes. He goes with them because he knows that, the, that God the Father has ultimate power over everything. And 
This is the perfect plan to bring the revolution that will change everything. Judas and his gang are the obvious clash of the kingdoms. Judas isn't even trying to understand the kingdom of God. He's rejected it. But there are those who are trying to understand it. They're trying to figure this kingdom of God out. The disciples, they, they're, they're, they're trying to, yet they're not able to stay with Jesus to his death. They flee. And verses 51 to 52 may seem a little random. There's this anonymous young man who, who sticks around a bit longer, but when he's seized, he's, he's so filled with terror, so intent on on saving himself that he runs away without his, even his robe. He leaves that, and, and, and this is a symbol of shame. Nakedness is a symbol of shame, but he's willing to go that to save himself. Some think that this may have been Mark himself who ran away because of the way Mark leaves this anonymous, that it might have been himself he was talking about, but it, even though this might be a possibility, I don't think we're supposed to try to figure out who this guy was. He remained, Mark kept him anonymous, so that we'd reflect on ourselves. Am I the person who would stick with Jesus to his death or am I concerned more about myself? It's a good question to ponder. And there's one more disciple that we kind of skipped over with that, 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 that he's struggling to understand the kingdom of God and its new order of priorities. In verse 47, it says there, one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Mark doesn't tell us who it is. He leaves this anonymous. And I think, again, that's meant for us to consider. Am I the person that would grab my sword in this situation? But John 18 tells us it was Peter. Peter really did want to understand and follow Jesus. He, he said, I'm willing to die for you. But he still didn't understand the kingdom what Jesus is all about, and the kingdom is about dying to ourselves. So Peter did what he was used to doing. He grabbed the value system of the world, his sword, and wielded it. He still didn't understand the king of the kingdom. He didn't understand the value systems of the kingdom of the world, so he went back to what he was used to. And I think this is where we can be encouraged and comforted because I don't know about you, but I find myself like Peter so often. I want to live with the priorities of the kingdom of God, but I find myself picking up my sword, lashing out, yelling, thinking bad things, taking up the priorities of the kingdom of the world, acting like a person of the kingdom of the world rather than a person of the kingdom of God. After the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Acts tells us that Peter and the other disciples were empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's funny that this passage falls on Pentecost Sunday because that's what happened. On Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit came and empowered the disciples. And Peter and the disciples who were so afraid were empowered and Peter, this guy who failed so miserably here, and next week we'll see how much more he even failed, becomes someone of great courage, willing to stand boldly for Jesus and die on his behalf to himself. This passage, it's a vivid contrast between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God. The kingdoms of the world bring the sword. They try to exert power Betray, don't pray, use violence, sneak around at night, abandon Jesus. 
And Jesus demonstrates the kingdom of God. He took time in the passage we looked at last week to pray and to pour out what he was feeling and come to terms with God's plan and submit to God's plan, not what I will, but you will. And then he submits to God the Father. He loves those who betray him. And he follows the plan of the Father. There's a lot of invitations and challenges in this passage. And there's a lot of us in this room. And I think God, the Holy Spirit, works in each one of us in different ways wherever we are. So what is he saying to you? Maybe he wants to comfort you with the truth that he's in complete control. No matter what you see going on around, he has a plan and he's working it. And you can be comforted by that and you can trust him. Maybe he's inviting you to submit to God and give your life to Jesus for the first time. If you have never asked Jesus to forgive you, if you've never given your life to him, this is your invitation. You can enter in to this loving relationship that gives us power over anything that happens. It doesn't make life easy, but it gives us power through it. Maybe he's challenging you to ponder whether you are living as a person of the kingdoms of the world with the, that value system, or whether you're striving to live as the kingdom of, the, of heaven. And if there's no struggle going on for you, then, then you're probably just giving up and living as, a kingdom of the, living as if you're a person of the kingdoms of the world. Because when you're striving, that's gonna be a struggle. I invite you to listen to the Holy Spirit. Ask him to reveal to you what he's saying to you. What's your response? And I invite you to talk to a trusted friend. If you're in a life group, if you're not in a life group, talk to us about starting one in the fall. Some of us are, are not meeting over the summer, but life groups are a good place to talk about this stuff. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? What could he be saying to you? But talk to someone. I value your emails if you want to send me an email and talk about it. But, but we're meant to do this in community. So what is the Holy Spirit saying to you and how are you going to include others in that? Let's pray together. God, you are so good. I'm so glad we sang that. You are so, so good. And every passage just draws us in. Your word is powerful and effective. It's doing what it needs to do, and I pray that we would be open to what it's doing in our hearts and lives right now. Make us sensitive and give us power to respond appropriately. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.